The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this evening, Truth Without Love, Part 2, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So we were last together... We considered this text. Uh, there's been a letter that's been sent, right? This letter sent through the means of an angelic messenger, and it's been given to the church at Ephesus, and it's a letter sent by the Lord Jesus Christ himself from the throne room of heaven. Uh, as it were, this letter coming to the church at Ephesus from the very throne room, the one who holds in his right hand the seven stars, the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands is the one who cares for his church and loves his church and shows compassion toward his church in her weakness and in her tribulation. Uh, Notice now with me, as we consider this letter to the church at Ephesus, that the Lord, the one who walks in the midst of the golden lampstands, isn't walking in the midst of the lampstands with an axe. (laughs) I think that's an important point to make. He's not walking in the midst of the lampstands, chopping down lampstands as he finds errors. He's not practicing medieval medicine, as it were, sawing off limbs from the body if there's any hint of a problem. Uh, He is the great physician. He cares for his church. He loves his church. So he's not walking amidst the lampstands with an axe. He's pruning wicks, trimming wicks and tending to the lampstands, caring for them. He is the one, I want to put this in context for us, he's the one who has given his own life to see, to ensure that the church lives He has shed his own blood to redeem her. He loves her with an immeasurable, an immeasurable love. We say around here that the church loves this church far more than we do. And we love this church, but we know the Lord loves this church far more than we can love this church. So first then, considering that as the picture, as the context in which the Lord now walks amongst his lampstands, he first rejoices to commend what he sees in the church as good and healthy. You'll find that commendation in verse 2. The Lord says to the church at Ephesus, I know your works. I know your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. He commends them in this, right? You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, have found them to be liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. You can hear him saying, in that you've done well, right? Well done, good and faithful servants. But second now, second The one who walks in the midst of the lampstands, the great physician, as it were, is also faithful to spot a growing cancer. And again, he's not walking through the lampstands with an axe. He's trimming wicks, tending to the lampstands. And the Lord, in faithfully treating that malady, as it were, is on the lookout for any spreading impurity that would threaten the life of the body. Uh, He's concerned about his church. He loves his church. Verse 4, so he says now... As the one who tends to the lampstands, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. If that cancer is not biblically and effectively excised, it will destroy the church. It'll destroy the church. If that cancer is not biblically, effectively dealt with, it'll kill the church. The Lord says himself, He'll remove their lampstand out of its place. So what does the great physician do? The Lord faithfully calls them to repentance, do the first works. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I would submit to you, that's a good example from our Lord Jesus Christ, right? A good example. It's uh, speaking the truth in love. That's what the Lord does. That's what the Lord exemplifies here. He speaks the truth in love, truth with love. It's a good lesson for us in how we should interact with one another, isn't it? We should speak the truth and speak the truth in love. Coming in love with what we know to be good and faithful and true, grateful for our fellowship in the gospel, and yet at the same time, as our Lord, not shrinking back from the sobering responsibility, from the necessary responsibility of making known the truth. Brother, I'm so grateful for you. So grateful that we get to serve in the Lord's church together. Love you. You're my brother in Christ. Nevertheless, right, there's something difficult I need to talk to you about. The truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. 
And we can't neglect that responsibility. Notice the Lord is faithful in it. He's faithful in it. Even commending them for the things that they've done well, but not shrinking back from identifying and dealing with the deadly cancer. And this is a deadly cancer. This is something that the Lord must do. This is something that we're responsible to do in our own church. Amen? We're to be responsible to speak the truth in love, to deal with one another in this way, following our Lord's example. The church at Ephesus had lost sight. They had lost sight of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, but they've lost sight of this balance, this balance that is to exist between truth and love. Somehow the church at Ephesus had left her first love had departed her first love. And though she exhibited faithfulness in the truth, she exhibited a vigilance for the truth, a zeal for the truth. It was a blind zeal. It's a, it's a heartless zeal. It's a ritualistic zeal because it no longer had an ardent love for the Lord Jesus Christ at the heart of it. You see? It may have been a zealous zeal, uh, a zeal for the truth, a diligence for the truth, faithfulness, but because, because love for Jesus Christ was no longer at the heart of their diligence, at the heart of their zeal, it was meaningless, it was ritualistic, it was heartless, it was loveless. And Paul has said, though I understand all mysteries, though I understand all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains but have not love, and in particular, a love for Jesus Christ that overflows its banks into a love for neighbor, and Paul says, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Now that omission, as we talked about last week, is stunning. It's a stunning omission. It's a stunning rebuke. And it's stunning for multiple reasons. Certainly not the least of which is the fact that it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ who is to be our first love. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself who's correcting this church. We saw last week how that, that stunning failure to love Jesus Christ was preeminently expressed in a lack of faithfulness to be witnesses for him. A lack of faithfulness to shine as lights in a dark place. Their lack of love for the Lord bore the bitter fruit of silence. And the Great Commission had become their great omission. We looked at several examples last week that supported that inference from Scripture. Examples of Lex Talionis. And examples of Lex Talionis, or an eye for an eye as it were, in the warnings that the Lord gives to the churches in their sin and in their disobedience. We deduce from good and necessary inference that the church at Ephesus had ceased being a light. So the Lord says, I'm going to remove your lampstand. They had ceased letting their light so shine before men. They had, in effect, hidden their light under a loveless bushel. And Jesus Christ had somehow been replaced as the light at the center of their own heart. As much as this is a letter to the church, we have to remember this is also to individual Christians. The church is not some nebulous entity. It's not some brick and mortar building. The church are, is you and I. Uh, we are the church. Us individually and us individu are corporately together, knit together by the Spirit. We are the church. And so as much as the church had left their first love, we can imagine that predominantly in that church, individuals right, had forsaken their first love. They themselves had ceased being a light for the Lord Jesus Christ in a dark place. They themselves had become heartlessly or lovelessly ritualistic in their worship. Jesus Christ somehow replaced. And so the Lord says, I'll remove your lampstand. I'll remove your lampstand. Verse five, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent, do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Well, there's a sense of urgency there, isn't there? A sense of urgency. I will come to you quickly. Remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You'll no longer be a light. Right? You'll no longer be a light. There will come a time. There will come a time when the hope of the gospel will be removed from this wicked world. There will come a time when the light will cease to shine, will no longer shine. 
Turn with me to Revelation 18. I want you to see there, I think there's a, just a masterful double referent employed in Revelation chapter 18, down in verse 21, speaking of the fall of the harlot Babylon. Look at Revelation chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a, a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you any more. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you any more. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you any more. And here it is. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore, and the voice of a bridegroom and the voice of bride shall not be heard in you anymore. In other words, a time for mercy, a time for grace through the gospel will at that time come to an end. And this world, the harlot Babylon, will be thrown down. But brothers and sisters, this exhortation, this rebuke, this correction from the Lord Jesus Christ himself to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 tells us that the long-suffering and patience of our God is salvation. While he is patient, while there is time, be a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ in this dark world. While we await the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment, now is the time that we are to shine as lamps. Now is the time that we're to labor as witnesses to him in a dark place. And may it never be, brothers, that, we, that a faithless lack of love for Jesus Christ marks us by a sinful silence. A faithless lack of love that is evidenced, as it were, through our failure, through our neglect, through our rejection of being witnesses for Jesus Christ. The church at Ephesus has slipped into a deadly spiritual slumber. And it's a spiritual slumber it's like the slow death from carbon monoxide, right? That slow death from carbon monoxide begins with a sleep unaware, and then you die. Similar here, having fallen from a zealous love for Jesus Christ, a zealous love that they experienced in Acts 18, when the church was planted, Acts 19, as the church is built, Ephesus had slipped into a loveless ritualism, doing many of the right things, but all lacking the right reason. Doing many of the right things, but lacking the right heart. They've slipped into a deadly spiritual slumber. It's a slow death. At first you sleep unaware, and then you die. What the Lord means by first love is the love that a bride has for her bridegroom. First love. Many of you couples in here, maybe you can remember uh, what it was like when it was days leading up to your marriage. That first love is a love that sends all other loves fleeing into obscurity. Right? That first love is a love in the light of which all others pale by comparison. Luther describes it in a letter that he entitled The Freedom of a Christian. Listen to this from Luther. Here, this rich and divine bridegroom Christ marries this poor, wicked harlot, redeems her from all her evil, and adorns her with all his goodness. Her sins cannot now destroy her, since they are laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him. And she has that righteousness in Christ, her husband, of which she may boast as of her own, and which she can confidently display alongside her sins in the face of death and hell, and say, if I have sinned, Yet my Christ, in whom I believe, has not sinned. All his is mine, and all mine is his. As the bride in the Song of Solomon says, my beloved is mine, and I am his. Hers is a love of incomparable preeminence, right? He is mine, my beloved, the one whom I love. He is mine, and I am his. And she revels in that, revels in that for all that he has done for her. He is her beloved. When you become a Christian, you don't simply marry in order to be part of the household, right? We're not simply marrying uh, to get in on the inheritance. The marriage is made so that you may know and enjoy him. 
right? The marriage is made so that you may know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the marriage. And somehow, the church at Ephesus has forgotten that, right? Somehow, the church at Ephesus, they're not beaming as a new bride any longer, right? At one point, they had that love. They had that affection. They were beaming as a new bride would. No longer are they doing that. It's shameful, isn't it? Shameful. David pleads with God in repentance as if he were coming to the Lord for the first time. We hear much of that in David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. Listen. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Rejoy to me, or restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. It's a plea. It's a heart-wrenching plea. Please, God. And then he says, verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. You see the connection? The connection, this plea of God to restore him in repentance. But that plea that is a plea of love, his beloved as it were, he is mine, I am his. Please, Lord, restore to me the joy of my my salvation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. In other words, the, the natural response, as it were, of the heart of the Christian in embracing the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith is to teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. An understanding of his sin matched and overcome by grace that abounds much more, right? Romans chapter five, results in a love, results in a gratitude-fueled determination to honor and to glorify the God of his salvation. That's David's heart, right? That results in being a witness for Jesus Christ. In other words, to, to see him honored, to see him magnified, to see him glorified through the preaching of the gospel. David says, I will shine with gospel light. I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners shall be converted to you. The death of that zeal, right? The death of that kind of love is often a slow one. At first you slumber unaware and then you die. But it has, it has died in many. Maybe it's died in you at one point or another. There were times in your own experience of the Christian life where you had a sense that you've lost your first love. I just don't love Jesus Christ the way that I once did. Right? And you, you sense experientially, don't we, the, the creeping awareness of this cool death that grips your heart or grips your life. It's scary, isn't it, when you become aware? Often, often the apostate sleeps unaware until they die. The church at Ephesus is being overcome by this very slumber, this very disease, this encroaching death. Affections for the church, affections or interest in the things of God grow cool, Affections for your brother, for the people of God, wax and wane, grow cool. You become indifferent. We become increasingly distracted by the things of this world. Soon, we don't really miss being here all that much when we're not. or We really don't miss those people. We may not even miss the worship of God with those people. Maybe we realize that maybe we don't, that a deadly cancer has gripped the heart. Praise God for texts like Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 2. Right? Praise God for his kind and gracious rebuke, speaking the truth to us in love. Having commended the church at Ephesus for their works and then having rebuked the church at Ephesus for a stunning lack of love, the great physician then in grace and in mercy, he gives his prescription. We have the prescription from the great physician, a remedy for their malady. And what is that remedy? Remember Repent and return. Remember, repent and return. Verse five. The Lord says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Remember, repent, return. How do you rekindle a fire that is close to dying? How do you restore affections that have cooled? 
a devotion that is waning? How do you wake up from that deadly slumber that has gripped your heart? Remember, repent, return. Now first, consider with me, we're called to remember. We're called to remember. Remember your first love. Remember. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. Christ commands them to rekindle the zealous flame of their lamp by remembering from where they have fallen. It may often be difficult to discern your own spiritual condition. Sometimes we're not very good at that. We may have a self, we, we have a self-justifying enemy within our own breast often, don't we? Our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We can easily deceive ourselves. We're self-justifying. But we may often discern a cooling of our affections by remembering, by going back, as it were, to when we first knew the Lord, when we first set out to follow him. When I remember thinking to myself, I'm never going to sin again. (laughs) And that lasted about five five minutes (laughs) for reality grips you, but you're ready to charge hell with a squirt gun. You're ready to do anything for Jesus Christ, right? You, You go back to that time when you first came to know the Lord and you think about the spiritual heights to which the Lord had elevated you at your conversion. Falling from that height is dangerous. This is what Paul is, or uh, John, the Lord Jesus Christ, is saying here. Falling from that height is dangerous. Remember the joy. Remember the love that accompanied your salvation. John Bunyan gives us a good example of this. And this is a, a lengthy quote, but I think it's profitable for us to consider it here. Grace abounding to the chief of sinners, Right? It's profitable for Christians to to often be calling to mind the very beginnings of grace with their souls. It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed in all the children of Israel and all their generations. Listen, Bunyan, speaking of his autobiography here, in this discourse of mine, you may see much, much, I say, of the grace of God toward me. I thank God I cannot count it much, for it was above my sins. I thank God I can count it much, for it was above my sins and above Satan's temptations too. I can remember my fears and doubts and sad months with comfort. They are as the head of Goliath in my hand. There was nothing to David like Goliath's sword, even that sword that should have been sheathed in his bowels, for the very sight and remembrance of that did preach forth to David God's deliverance. Oh, the remembrance of my great sins, of my great temptations, and of my great fears of perishing forever. They bring afresh into my mind the remembrance of my great help and my great support from heaven, and that the great grace that God extended to such a wretch as I. You see what Bunyan is saying, Remembering those woeful periods when I was plunged into the depths of sorrow over my sin, I remember what the Lord Jesus Christ did to lift me out of those depths, right? And that's encouraging, encouraging to remember that. My dear children, Bunyan says, call to mind those former days and the years of ancient times. Remember also your songs in the night and commune your own heart. Yea, look diligently and leave no corner therein unsearched, for there is a treasure hid, even the treasure of your first and second experience of grace, of the grace of God toward you. Remember, I say, the word that first laid hold upon you. Remember your terrors of conscience. Remember your fear of death and hell. Remember also your tears and prayers to God. Yea, how you sighed under every hedge for mercy. Have you never a hill miser to remember? Have you forgotten the clothes, the milk house, the stable, the barn, and the like, where God did visit your soul? It's a different day, right? We'd say the office, the car, the, you know. (laughs) Remember also the word, the word, I say, upon which the Lord hath caused you to hope. If you have sinned against the light, if you are tempted to blaspheme, if you are down in despair, if you think God fights against you, or if heaven is hid from your eyes, remember, it was thus with your father, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Calls us to remember, 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 remember. We did that this morning in the Lord's Supper. We take the Lord's Supper for a perpetual remembrance. Remember with the Lord, the goodness, the good that the Lord has done to us and for us. Amen? Think with me for a moment. Why is it, why is it that, we loved him, that, why, that we love him? Why is it? Why do we love him? Because he first loved us. 
Because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. So what should we do, brothers and sisters? If we want to rekindle, rekindle the flame of our love for him, we remember his love for us. In all the ways that is gloriously and beautifully displayed in the gospel, right? Displayed at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember his love for you in the gospel. Remember. Second, the Lord then calls us to repent. Lord calls us to repentance. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. Repent of allowing your love for Christ to wax and wane. Repent that we are such creatures that our love for him would ever wax or wane. Repent of allowing your affections for him to cool. The way up, so to speak, begins with an acknowledgement that you are way down. (laughs) The way up is the way down. The Puritan prayer, the Valley of Vision. Listen to that. I think this is really helpful. It's a prayer to God. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime stars uh, can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter the stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. It's beautiful, amen? Right. Genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is the way up. Genuine repentance is, out of, is the way out of that loveless hole that we often dig ourselves into. Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. Listen to verse 9. I rejoice now, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us and nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow produced by guilt over sin, that sorrow produced by guilt that attaches to you, clings to you like a joy-sucking leech, and lingers on you like a joy-sucking leech until you have finally turned from it, that's not godly sorrow, right? That's not godly sorrow. That kind of sorrow is an example of worldly sorrow that will only lead to death. That kind of sorrow may be a work of the adversary, may be a work of our self-righteous heart, or the work of your own flesh in some act of ascetic act of penance or concerned most often with self-righteousness rather than with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, freely given given, uh, by the grace of God through faith. One said, if the enemy cannot keep you from regretting your sin, then the enemy will do his best to keep you from enjoying your forgiveness. If he fails in his attempt to keep you from grieving over sin, he will do his best to turn your godly grief into an ongoing bondage of unwarranted guilt. We're to flee to the cross, amen? Flee to the cross, flee to Jesus Christ. Godly sorrow casts you heart and soul to the foot of the cross. Whereas the hymn writer says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That godly sorrow, then, that leads to repentance is according to, or is then evidenced by, fruits. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, for observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all these things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. 
So the Lord calls us to a Godward repentance, a Godward sorrow over sin. Our text in Revelation 2 refers to that as a restoration or a return, right? We are to remember, we're to repent, and we are to return. Look at verse 5, Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Remember, repent, return. You won't be able to gen up the affections that you had when you first set out to follow the Lord. If you've ever tried to do that, you'll see that, you'll know that to be a fruitless cause, right? A, fruitful, a fruitless cause. You can't gin it up. You can't work it up. Uh, I'm going to listen to that same song that, you know, quote unquote, did it for me last time. Those aren't true affections. I don't know what that is exactly, but that's not what, that's not what we're going for. Only the Spirit of God can bring life out of death. Right? Only the Spirit of God can produce in you those affections. Only the Spirit of God can give you that sense of experiential love for the Lord Jesus Christ. But you can, you can't, though you can't gin up those affections from your flesh, you can return to the works that you did then when that was evidence in you or when that was true of you. You can return to the zeal with which you did those things and you can return to the dependence upon the Spirit with which you did them. The Lord Jesus Christ says, do the first works. Notice he doesn't say there, feel the first feelings. Love with your initial love. Right? He's not saying it that way. How does he say it? Do the first works. Do the first works. Do the first works and feelings will follow. Do you see? We're not governed by our feelings, governed by our emotions. But our feelings, our emotions are a true part of the Christian life. Feelings and emotions are part of our love and our affection and our zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ. Those things are true of the Christian. But those emotions, those feelings, those affections follow. They follow upon biblical truth. They follow upon biblical faith that evidences itself in a biblical zeal and a biblical diligence for biblical good works. So what does the Lord say for us to do? Do the first works. Feelings will follow. Renew, refresh your commitments to the Lord Jesus Christ. We can do that. He will not abandon you nor forsake you. Remember all that Christ has done in love for you. Go to the word of God. Study, consider, read there what the Lord has revealed, the things that he has done for those who love him. Repent of your lovelessness toward him and return to the work of serving him in love, serving him in faithfulness, serving him in zeal and diligence. Be his witness with the gospel, right? Those are the first works. Bear fruit for the Lord by being his witness with the gospel. Love is not simply a warm feeling. It's not what's meant here. It's not simply a human emotion. Love is doing and serving and acting in emotions and feelings follow. Second right? Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. The love of Christ, Christ's love for us, compels us because we judge thus. Now listen, it's not that we love in this way or because the love of Christ compels us because we feel this way. It's not what the text says. It's because we judge thus. We consider it to be this way. We reckon it in our minds to be this way. This is the truth. That if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died for them and rose again. And so I judge thus. I need to return to the Lord in serving him. Good works and diligence and in zeal, feelings will follow. Remember, repent, return, and there is pardon. There's pardon. It's often that we are so hard-hearted, aren't we? Hard-hearted. So often the Lord then, because we're so hard-hearted, uses warnings to communicate the seriousness of what he's telling us. And we, we need those warnings. Those warnings are often, uh, they are a significant or a substantial guard for us against apostasy, against wandering off, prone to wander as we are. Verse five, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else. 
You hear the Lord's warning in that, don't you? Or else I will come to you quickly. There's a sense of urgency. I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. That's a sign of apostasy. All this unless you repent. The removal of the church's lampstand from its place indicates the removal of the church, do you see? On a personal level, it's a removal of the professing Christian. And their removal as a light of witness for Jesus Christ in this dark world. It's not merely a loss of rewards. Like we spoke about this morning during the Lord's Supper. It's an indication of apostasy. It's an indication that they were never really, truly his. An indication that they should have a certain fearful expectation of judgment. Remember the heights from which you have fallen, Ephesus. Right? Remember the heights from which you have fallen, brother, sister. Repent of your loveless and faithless fall and return to your first love. How do I do that? Do the first works. When should I do them? Quickly. <laughs> before it's too late. Before you are further hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's the issue, right? Return. As soon as you become aware, don't continue to slumber in that sleep of death unaware before you die. Wake up, right? Wake up. Stir yourself up by way of remembrance, Stir yourself up by way of remembrance and do the first works. Repent of your sin and get back to what you did at the start. Return to your first love. Do the first works before it's too late and do them before you become hardened further by the deceitfulness of sin. Show by your actions that Jesus Christ is your greatest treasure. Show by your actions that you believe and know that whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Right? Remember, the Lord said, if you love mother or father, brother or sister more than me, you're not worthy of me. But the Lord says to them, essentially, you're not apostates yet. There is still much to commend you, verse 6. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans were a group that apparently had given themselves to the, Balaam, the, the doctrine of Balaam, right? In verse 14, those who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. The Nicolaitans were apparently a group who had given themselves over to this doctrine of Balaam. They were either named for the false teacher that they followed, and there is some speculation about that, or they were named for the Greek word nikola, meaning let us eat. In other words, they were wanting to overthrow the prohibitions given at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 to eat meat offered to idols. Clement of Alexandria says, they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. That was the Nicolaitans. The Lord says, I hate the works of the Nicolaitans. The church at Ephesus also hated the works of the Nicolaitans. Then the Lord closes his letter to the church at Ephesus in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Interesting. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When the Spirit speaks, Jesus Christ is speaking, right? When Jesus Christ speaks, it's the Spirit who speaks. And Jesus Christ now speaks, verse 7, in the power and presence of the Spirit. Jesus Christ is speaking, verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear these things that the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. The tree of life and the paradise of God there in verse 7 are those realities from which Adam and Eve were cast out after they sinned, right? They were separated from the tree of life, separated from the paradise of God after their sin separated them from God. So in essence, what that's saying, verse 7, is they were cast away from communion with God, cast away from, from God's life-giving presence as symbolized by the tree. They were cast away from the presence of God himself, and the one who overcomes, he will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Those things are restored. To the one who overcomes, those things are restored. To the one who conquers is what the, the word means. The one who overcomes, nikao, it means to conquer or to prevail. The one who overcomes will inherit. 
to the one who overcomes his sin. That's what he's referring to here. It's the sin of failing to love Jesus Christ. The sin specifically, particularly, of failing to love Jesus Christ by bearing witness to him, by being witnesses for him. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you think you've heard that phrase before, you're correct. If you've read your Bible, right? Gone through the New Testament. In the New Testament, the Lord uses that statement, one very near to it, to exhort his hearers to heed the message of the parables. The phrase refers to the effect, if you will, that the parables had on their hearers. Now think with me and follow along. We could say, say the same for this, the use of this phrase in the Old Testament also. It refers to the effect that prophecy would have on its hearers. Where we see it first is in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 and beginning in verse 9. Listen to this from the Lord to Isaiah. Right? The Lord said to Isaiah... Go and tell this people. What is he to tell the people? Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Right? You sense, there's a sense of judgment in this, isn't there? God is going to judge a disobedient people. Verse 10, through prophecy, right? He tells Isaiah, make the heart of this people dull, make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. God intends to judge Israel. He's going to judge Israel through the prophecy of Isaiah. And he's going to do that through Isaiah's preaching and their deafness, right? Their stubborn, hard-hearted rejection of what Isaiah is going to be proclaiming to them. The Lord said to Ezekiel, listen to this to Ezekiel, Thus says the Lord God, he who hears, let him hear. And he who refuses, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. In the New Testament, when we get to the New Testament then, the Lord tells the parable of the sower. For one example, one example among several, the Lord tells the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, verse 9, and says to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the disciples then come to Jesus Christ and they ask the Lord, what do you mean by this? Why do you speak to them in parables? Why is it, Jesus, that you speak to these people in parables? Verse 11, he answered and said to them, interesting, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given to them. Fascinating, isn't it? The Lord speaks in parables because to you, you could say, indwelt by the Spirit, given spiritual understanding, to you who are saved, to you who are mine, it's been given to you to understand the mysteries. But to them, it's not been given. So I speak in parables, like Isaiah's prophecy, so that they don't understand, okay? Verse 12, for whoever has to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. Seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. If they saw with their eyes, if they heard with their ears, if they perceived with their hearts, and if they turned at that reproof back to the Lord, the Lord would heal them. But the Lord speaks to them in parables as a judgment against them so that hearing, they don't hear. Seeing, they don't see. Listening to those parables, they do not perceive. Verse 16, but blessed are your eyes for they see. Blessed are your ears for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and desired to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Like the pronouncements of the prophets, the teaching of the parables 
enlighten some and harden others. See the effect of the preaching of the word of God? That's true when you and I preach the gospel, right? It's true when the gospel is preached from this pulpit or from our classrooms here. It hardens some and enlightens other. And that others, that's by God's design, by God's purpose. God is sovereign. God is sovereign over salvation. G.K. Beale said this, the parables throughout the book not only have a judicial effect on the unbelieving, but are also meant to shock believers who are caught up in the church's compromising complacency by revealing to them the horrific, beastly nature of the idolatrous institutions with which they are beginning to associate. Some, it's a judicial, it has a judicial hardening effect on them, and to others, it shocks them, shocks them into repentance, shocks them to an awareness. We see in the book of Revelation, from this point or after and forward, really chapters 4 through 21, we see in the book of Revelation a series of events very like the plagues in Egypt. We're going to be drawing that comparison as we get to those chapters. They're very much like the plagues that were visited upon Egypt. And if you remember, the plagues that were visited upon Egypt had a twofold effect, didn't they? Hardened the heart of Pharaoh, hardened the hearts of the Egyptians steeled them in their resolve to disobey God at the same time that it illumined the understanding of the Israelites, softened the hearts of the Israelites, and drew forth from them trust and obedience. It hardened Pharaoh and the Egyptians while communicating salvation and deliverance to Israel. Now... Now, that's applied to the world and to the church. And it's applied in part here in the book of Revelation through the use of symbols. Through, through the use of these things that are sometimes difficult to understand. Here, in a sense, think with me. Here we find reason for much of the symbolic communication in the book of Revelation. In the way that these things are presented in Revelation, there are many seeing they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear. Hearing, their hearts do not understand. They do not perceive. But what does the Lord say? Blessed are your eyes, for you see, and your ears, blessed are your ears, for they hear. What many prophets and righteous men desire to see, you see. What many desire to hear, you hear. And that's by the grace of God. Salvation is not going to come through objectively hearing what comes in through your ear. It's objectively hearing what comes through your ear applied to your heart by the Spirit of God. Salvation will not come by what objectively comes in through your eye gate or in through your ear gate, but will come through what comes in through your ear gate or comes in through your eye gate, applied by the Spirit of God to your heart. Takes the Spirit of God. The disciples came and said to the Lord Jesus Christ, why do you speak to them in parables? He could come to us and ask the question or ask of the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, why do you speak to them in symbols? He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Whoever has, to him more will be given. This book takes study, it takes work, it takes effort in God's word. To whoever has, to him more will be given. He will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, we spoke this morning about those who would deny the inspiration of the scriptures on the basis of some centuries-old telephone game and what an absurd notion that is. And what is the ultimate reason for that? They do not know their Bibles. They don't know the Bible. Don't know the Bible. How many times have lost people made assertions about the inspiration of Scripture, about the veracity of Scripture, because they do not know the Scriptures? It's not been given to them, at least not yet, right? For whoever has, to him more will be given. He will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, 
will be taken away from him. They persist in their ignorance. Therefore, the Lord says, I speak to them in parables. I speak to them in parables, or even in the book of Revelation through symbols like this, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Do you have ears to hear? (laughs) Do you have a heart to perceive, to understand? Praise God, right? Praise God. And having ears to hear by God's grace, having eyes to see by God's grace, having a heart to understand, we should be placing ourselves under the preaching and teaching of God's word all the time. Every opportunity that we have. Why? Because the spirit of God is at work through that revelation to apply what you hear, to apply what you see to your heart that you might live for him. It's a work of his spirit that you see. It's a work of his spirit that you hear, that you understand. Those miracles, for example, in the book book of John, when the Lord Jesus Christ is performing miracles, those are called signs. Why are they signs? Because they point to something. They point to a spiritual truth. What is the spiritual truth that the Lord is pointing to when he heals the man born blind? The spiritual sight comes from God. Spiritual sight is a gift of God's grace. It comes from the Lord. Uh, We have eyes to see because the Lord has blessed us with eyes to see. We have ears to hear because the Lord has blessed us with ears to hear. Let's not receive the grace of our God in vain, amen? But we seek to understand his word. We study his word and we sit under the preaching and teaching of his word and we rejoice in his word for what he has condescended to reveal to us in it. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Praise God if you have an ear, amen? (laughs) Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for ears to hear. Thank you, Lord, for eyes to see. Thank you, Lord, for hearts to understand. Thank you for the work of your Spirit, which illumines the heart, illumines the mind, causes us to hear and to see and to understand Thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us in the scriptures. Thank you, Lord, for uh, ordaining, even before the foundation of the world, that we should hear and that we should see. Praise you, God, for this revelation of yourself, for this revelation of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that that would motivate us to be diligent workmen in the word of your truth, that we would not be ashamed Lord, that we would be diligent students of your word, that we would seek knowledge of you in the scriptures. And then ultimately, Lord, that wouldn't be a knowledge of the truth that is loveless or a knowledge of the truth that has truth as its center, but Lord, a knowledge of the truth that has our Lord Jesus Christ as the center, that has as its center an ardent love for our Lord. I pray, Lord, that we would not be loveless We would be zealous for the truth, vigilant with the truth, diligent in the truth. We would rejoice in the truth. Only so far, Lord, as it has our Lord Jesus Christ, your glorious gospel, his work on our behalf, all that you have revealed at its very center and causes us to look upward and to love him more. I pray, Lord, that this church would be a a church that abounds in that grace. Cause us, Lord, to love you with a fervent love. And loving you in that way, Lord, I pray that it would overflow into love for our neighbor, love for one another, as we seek to shine as lights in this dark world. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.